I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Today's guest is somebody I have just such immense respect for. It's Tom Berducci, Sports Illustrated senior writer, as well as a uh, Fox Sports and MLB Network reporter and broadcaster. I worked for many years uh, with Tom at Sports Illustrated. actually fact-checked some of his stories, which were an absolute pleasure. Um, the guy is essentially the definition of pro. He was an amazing, amazing colleague. And as I've told the, the story many times, either in print, uh, probably in podcast form too. Uh, when I was 19 at the University of Buffalo, I wrote two letters. Uh, one was to a local Buffalo News sports columnist. One was to Tom Berducci, basically just asking them to look at my <laughs> shitty copy and give me any kind of advice. Never heard from the Buffalo News person who lived uh, you know, pretty much in my neighborhood Heard from Tom Verducci, wrote me a two-page handwritten letter on what I had written and how to get better, and I'm sure I still have that letter somewhere in my mom's house. Um, that's stuff you never forget. And uh, and then to join Sports Illustrated and to be on the same masthead as Tom Verducci was just like an absolute thrill. Um, I think the guy's uh, the best uh, baseball writer uh, I've ever read, and I think he's the best baseball writer of his generation for sure. So Tom Verducci will be on this podcast, and we're going to talk about baseball plans to restart and sort of how Tom sees that possibility. But beyond that, just how baseball media is going to change in this new paradigm and how writers um, will deal with limited access and will that last, how broadcasters will call games without being there. And that's just the very likelihood of that. The prospect of having temperature checks and health officials basically um, check you every time you enter a major league facility. A lot of interesting things that are going to happen. And then finally, we discussed Tom's piece on Michael Jordan's time with uh, the White Sox in Birmingham and A. Tom did sort of a retrospective of that. And I just find that fascinating because I think Jordan is totally underrated as a baseball player in terms of just how amazing he did what he did in A with basically having not played for years and and walking into a very, very competitive baseball league. So Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated, Fox Sports, and MLB Network coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top in the intro, uh, Tom Verducci, one of my uh, longtime colleagues at Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite colleagues, and I sort of gave you his uh, impressive resume. At the top of this, and Tom Verducci joins me on the Sports media podcast tom thanks for joining me and i hope uh i hope you and yours are well everybody's safe and i hope the same for you how you doing richard we're holding up here uh and i appreciate uh i appreciate that tom um so the reason tom i I mean it's always good to have you on but one of the reasons i wanted to have you on this week is sort of the momentum for uh, major league baseball returning in some form sort of continues to grow by the day so i want to start off with a macro question here and that is, has there been any format or contingency plan for restarting baseball 
that that strikes you as particularly sound or maybe the the most possible that that we might see early? Yeah, actually, and at the risk of tooting my own horn, because <laughs> back in March I had promoted this or at least suggested this uh, schedule wise to cut down on the amount of travel. I suggested just playing games within your division and then playing interleague games against the team in the opposite division, the opposite league. So East plays East and West plays West central plays central. And when you start working out the math, you realize it, it, it almost sounds at least on an East coast version of like the 1940s baseball where guys could take trains, you know, between Boston, New York, Washington, Philadelphia, um, and that looks like the safest way to come back. Now, there may be some issues. I mean, you're talking about 30 major league teams, so there's there's going to be different levels of concern about what the risks are in different areas. That's you know, it's a huge country. Countries, plural. Um, so putting that aside, I just think the idea of having teams not travel as much as they, they shouldn't, uh, I, I think that's a good place to start. And it also, to me keeps the divisions, uh, the importance of the divisions in place. So you're not going to back into winning your division by beating up teams in in another division. It's almost like an American Legion tournament. You know, you really got to win all those head-to-head games against teams in your division. You have a true division champion. Tom, have you, you know, one of the things that I've found really interesting is um, sort of watching um, the Korean Baseball League watching uh if you're uh, let's say a fan of soccer sort of how the bundesliga is going to try to start up sticking to baseball have you watched that league not necessarily for the bait for the baseball tom but to sort of see how it's working for them you know no crowds um how the players are reacting to playing with no crowds and then if you're just reading about that league you know the kind of temperature testing and checks that they're doing Yes, um, and there's a lot we can take from the KBO, and there's a lot we can't. Uh, for instance, there's only 10 teams there. We have 30. Uh, the greatest distance between teams in that league is a 50-minute plane ride. Uh, so the scale in this country is much larger than what it is in the KBO. And also, there's no question that because they, they – I think did a better job in terms of testing and contact tracing to begin with when the virus hit. They don't have nearly the amount of uh, infections and deaths created by the coronavirus and COVID-19 that we have here. So, um, you know, I caution that it's not a direct comparison, but some of the protocols, I think, do pave a path for MLB to return, such as you mentioned, the testing that's in place, uh, the body scan temperature imagery that, you know, everybody can go through before they walk on a field, um, keeping the clubhouse as sanitary and, and uh, as limited as possible. Only players and staff in there, you know, no media, no front office people um, creating this sort of bubble is what they call it. And how to do that from a protocol standpoint, I think, is definitely something that Major League Baseball can and has taken from. They've been in contact with that league, with the Bundesliga you mentioned. Um, so yes, I, I, I think in baseball's case, they don't have to start from a square one and wonder how some of these things might work. It's being done in practice as we speak. All right, Tom, I want to shift to sort of covering the game and what might be a new normal. So again, sort of an overview question, if baseball returns in whatever sort of contingency plan that they, they do, how do you think, let's forget about the broadcast 
part of it for a second, because I do want to ask you about that, because obviously people know you work for MLB Network and Fox. But how do you think baseball will be covered in sort of a new paradigm if reporters will not have and clearly will not have access to the clubhouse before the game, after the game? How, how do you think how, how will this change the sport with a significant reduction in access? Yeah, to be honest with you, Richard, I'm a little bit worried about that because this is something that the union has pushed for in the past in terms of limiting the access. They brought up the idea of Olympic-style access where you just have that room where they bring um, people in that you ask for. It's a very stilted environment. Um, I am of the opinion, not because I'm biased, (laughs) because, you know, access to me and what I do is great, but I think as a fan of the game as well, um, we access is super important. It's, um, it's how you introduce the people who play the game to the fans and not just the game itself. I've been a little bit worried. I got to be honest with you the last couple of years that baseball players have become commodities in, in the consumer world. And I say that because sometimes, you know, the people who run these major league teams talk about players according to whether a two-war player, a three-war player, or what their salary is, uh, what their free agent value is. I mean, it's like, almost like following, you know, uh, financial world, in the business world, that it's a stock market. And I think we've gotten away from who are these guys? What are their stories? How are they aspirational, not just inspirational? And, and I think the more we limit access to players to let them – tell their stories and, and, and have their personalities be known and seen, then the more they become numbers and less like people. And I, I think one of the great things about baseball has been traditionally better access than a lot of sports. And you get to know these players. Um, so I'm a little bit worried about that. Again, as a fan of the game, not so much. Well, it definitely is part of, as a journalist, but even as a fan of the game. And if I were not a journalist, and I were a fan, yeah, I want to know as much as I can about these guys and feel like I know them. I'm rooting for people that I can identify with. Um, so I, I don't think it's – listen, I understand these are very uncertain um, times we've never been through before, and I understand the need for it in the short term, but I don't want to see it become the quote-unquote new normal that this is, okay, we're going to use this opportunity now to really limit access. Tom, have you seen any of the photos from the KBO of the reporters um, sort of holding these mics where they're, um, you know, six feet away, 10 feet away from the players? So the players may be in like sort of one part of the stands. The, 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 the journalists are a couple rows up and are interviewing those players with a distance. I found that I found sort of the social distancing of the media pretty interesting there and if you've seen those photos I, I wanted to get your impression of, of of what you thought that was yeah well listen there was something similar that happened right before baseball shut down in spring training if you were in spring training camps you know the clubhouse became off limits and then if you wanted a player you did have to stand six feet away from that player to do an interview um again these are times that really call for extreme measures and safety and the, of the health of everybody involved is paramount so i, I wouldn't argue in, in this environment that, you know, we should be sitting right next to somebody at their locker uh, talking one-on-one. But again, I I wouldn't want to see that become just, okay, it worked, so let's continue to do that even in quote-unquote normal times. Let me ask you about the broadcast then, Tom, because this will certainly impact you. Um, What do you think about the prospect of calling games from a monitor, calling games from 
I'm just going to sort of make this up randomly. The the Fox uh, Sports Studio in New York City. Yeah, listen. If it has to be done, you do it. And I still still think, like anything else, you, you'll you'll do it to the best of your ability. But there's no question that you would lose something by not being there. I mean, when I do a game in the booth, uh, I, I don't watch the monitor a lot. There are things I see outside the vision of the camera shot that really informs the way I do a game. And, you know, it, it, there's no question that it's limiting if you're just limited to that particular shot. Now, it may be necessary, but hopefully there's a way that, you know, the people who are actually bringing the games into the homes of these fans are there as well. If you can't have fans at the game, you want as much of the feel of the game as possible. And I think the fact that there will be no fans there is a huge challenge. And fans are such a big part of the game. And I think if we have baseball without fans, you'll really realize it. I mean, I understand we, we know that now and the players say that a lot. And it's true that the fans really provide the adrenaline, the atmosphere. They're so important to Major League Baseball. But without them, you will really understand that. I mean, it'll seem like instructional league games in Florida in the middle of the day in 90-degree heat. Um, the sound of the game will sound extremely different. Um, so I think it's more important than ever to have as much feel from the actual venue to deliver to the people at home and not have it be so antiseptic. So again, you know, if it has to be that way, you, where you can't be there, I get it. But I'd love, love to think that there is a way to be there. All right. Following up on that, let me read you something that I saw that the Bundesliga broadcast personnel, not necessarily on-air talent, uh, but including on-air talent and production people. Uh, they have to get body temperature checks walking into the stadium. They have to answer eight questions about their health. Uh, you know, things like, do you have a fever, cough, sore throat? Where have you been in the last 14 days? Uh, there's a hygiene officer that determines basically if you will be allowed to enter uh, the facility or not. As somebody who, who in real, real terms, Tom, may have to uh, enter stadiums in some kind of capacity, how would you feel about just sort of undergoing these kind of questions and tests to cover baseball? Uh, sign me up. I mean, I have no problem with that. Again, you're creating a bubble here that has to be held to the strictest, higher, highest standards available. So from what I understand, the Bundesliga is uh, limiting the actual number of people in the stadium, media, players, staff, etc. I think the number is 300. Um, so as long as you can do as much as you can to provide for the safety and assurances of those 300 people, yeah, I'd be more than willing to sign up for that. I mean, it's like getting on an airplane now. You know, the protocols are a lot different than it was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. But we all do it because we know it's for our own good. And I would feel the same way going to, um, you know, a, a ballpark with really strict protocols. I wouldn't want to see anything less. I want to ask you a couple sort of general questions about baseball and the media today. I think one of the things, Tom, and you were one of the, I feel like one of the forerunners here, was if there was sort of a maybe 2.0 is a little too cliche, 2.0 of baseball writing, maybe it was like 7.0. But analytics and sort of the use of numbers in baseball writing has been one of the, the most prominent changes in how the content of that sport has been consumed oh, in the last 10, 15 years. Do you have any thoughts, Tom, as to what you think the next sort of iteration of baseball writing 
will be. I, I, I saw some people sort of uh, hypothesize that maybe gambling content becomes sort of the next wave of baseball writing and that you incorporate that. I don't know if that's going to be the case or not, but anything sort of come to mind as to um, what what the next evolution of of baseball writing is? And I think both of us hope that the next evolution is that it's not there's not less of it. There's there's still more of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I see continued specialization. I mean, we're seeing that throughout our society now where, you know, if you get into the medical field, you start drilling down to the really specific areas that the general practitioner, the country doctor, so to speak, um, and I'm sure they're still out there, but not in numbers that they were. It's the same with people covering sports in general. I mean, when I started, the sports columnist, the generalist, was the star of the show, right? The Dick Youngs, the Mike Lupicas of the world. Uh, and now people want expertise. And so the, I, I see, you mentioned analytics. It's certainly something that, um, you know, that wave is has really become strong and deep. But I also see, you mentioned gambling. I think for sure that there will be a segment. I'm not saying it will drive sports uh, baseball coverage, but it's certainly a segment devoted to gambling information. And I even think things like injury prevention and, you know, the way the body works, kinesiology. I mean, you, you talk to hitting coaches and, and pitching coaches now, and they're like experts in how the body works, the muscles, the training, the kinesiology, um, so you're going to need writers who understand that and not just understand it superficially. Same with analytics. If you try to come at analytics in a very superficial way, you know, people are not going to buy what you're saying. People want true expertise. So I, I think you're going to see um, really, um, I don't want to say silos because you still have to understand the game, but the areas of expect, ex- expertise, I think, will be even more defined going forward. I still think, though, and maybe I'm super old school in this regard, Richard, that what people have always wanted, and as platforms change and as the game changes itself, what people really want are good stories that are well told. And that, to me, will never change. And if you can do that, if you can tell people something that they don't know in a very entertaining, informative way, there's a market for that. That's well said, Tom. I, I, do, I don't think that's old school. I think that that will always exist. I think good information will always be, at least I hope, of value. I think it will be. You have, you're someone who, during the course of your career, has profiled and done stories on, I'll use sort of Sandy Koufax as an example, somebody from who was you know, a very, very big figure in the 50s and 60s. Um, you also, when you were at Newsday, you covered the Mets, so sort of like the Strawberry Gooden uh, 80s, 90s era. Today, you're covering players, uh, you know, who are at sort of the cusp of the game, like, uh, you know, uh, Mike Trout or, you know, sort of Mookie Betts. So I want to ask you, Tom, given that you have covered generations of baseball players, is the 2020 baseball player as a subject fundamentally different than like the 1980s baseball player? And if so, how are they different as a, as, as a subject, as someone who would be writing about them, trying to get access to them, et cetera? Um, I think as a subject, I think in general, there are fewer quote unquote characters in baseball. I think part of that is they're almost professional players as amateurs. And I say that because if anybody's been around the travel ball circuit, and I'm talking about the elite travel ball circuit, where people travel around the country, play in major league ballparks, are scouted from the time they're, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, they've kind of been groomed to 
act like a major leaguer for a much longer time than when I first started covering baseball. I mean, we, you guys drafted out of high school. They, they go through really small towns in the minor leagues, and they're not exposed to media. I mean, nobody really knows who they are. I'd like to say that the last person who showed up at spring training as a superstar player who you didn't know who he was was Albert Pujols. Now we know about these guys as amateurs, and certainly when they're drafted, and it's like we we already know who Ronald Acuna is by the time he puts on a big league uniform. So in some ways, uh, I say there's less characters. It's because they're, I, I think, more mature in a professional sense than they've ever been. Part of that is social media. But again, I think it's just the coverage of these guys that they're so used to it. Um, that you know, That's the biggest difference that I see. And, and all, the other thing now is getting time with players. And again, I'm getting back to telling their stories and understanding who they are. You know, when I, when I was covering those Mets in the 80s, you know, we hung out with those guys after games. We played basketball during the day. We played tennis. Um, you know, we knew the families of those guys. That doesn't happen anymore. I mean, part of it is, <laughs> believe it or not, Richard, part of it is these ballparks that have been built in this last generation are so good that the only time players are at their lockers is when they put their uniform on and off. So there's food rooms, there's Pilates rooms. I mean, you name it. They have sleep rooms. There's so many things to attend to the needs of players that are outside the actual clubhouse proper that the exposure to the media is limited even when the clubhouse is quote-unquote open. So there's less opportunity to get to know these guys and just talk to them as people. I'm not talking about one-on-one interviews and you know having a series of questions, but just engaging with them. So they become a little bit more distant that way. So for me, it's, it's access and it's the fact that these guys are really much more polished now than they were a generation ago. Well, Tom, now I got to know, who'd you play tennis with back in the day, days of the 80s Mets? <laughs> Roger McDowell and Ron Darling were a couple of guys. Uh, David Cohn was there more in basketball than, than, uh, than tennis. I'm sure that I can tell those stories now, but when they were playing, I don't think they wanted Frank Cashin to know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's probably not in the contract to play tennis or pick up basketball. <laughs> I mean, things were a lot less loose. I mean, a lot more loose back then, Richard. I can remember one time where Dwight Gooden was telling me he was such a good hitter, left-handed. He could have been a switch hitter. I didn't believe it. He goes, I'll show you right now. And we went out to the batting cage, and he had me throw to him in the batting cage. I mean, who would ever allow that now, to have a writer throw BP to a, a pitcher hitting on the other side of the place than he normally hits? But we did it. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine, like, Strasburg saying, hey, Tom, do me a favor. I, I need you to pitch batting practice to me right now. Yeah, just in- inconceivable. Wow, what a different right. time. I want to uh, finish up with a couple of quick things. Uh, you know, you can't really do a can't really do a sports media interview anymore without talking about the Last Dance. And um, you did a piece recently that I thought was just phenomenal. You um, you you sort of reexamined Michael Jordan's time with the White Sox. And so I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. What did you learn in doing sort of the writing and reporting of that piece about Jordan as a baseball player that you did not know heading in? Well, I know I had talked with Terry Francona in the past as manager in Birmingham about uh, Jordan, but I was really deeply impressed that um, that Terry said he he arrived with the right attitude and the whole reasons why he was there. Terry realized, and listen, he's heard the same rumors as everybody else. Hey, he need to get away from basketball. The conspiracy theorists said he was going to be suspended. Whatever. Um, but Terry's a straight shooter, and he let me know. I think he used the word pure. His intention was pure. He wanted to play baseball. Period. I, 
I love that. I remember seeing Michael in, in the Arizona Fall League that year. And listen, I knew he was he hit 202 at Birmingham, did better as the year went on. Um, but I remember looking at him and saying, there's something there with this guy. I mean, it, this wasn't like Billy Crystal showing up at Yankees spring training to take it at bat as a total mark. Um, you know, it, it's amazing, I think, as well as Michael did, given the fact that he hadn't played in, since he was a high school player. Um, so, yeah, I think it was interesting to me that I thought Jordan was on his way to becoming a big league ball player. And I say that not because he'd be an all-star or even an everyday player, but I think there was enough there to think he could be a 25th man, an extra outfielder who maybe can pinch run late in the game, uh, maybe taking a bat here and there, give somebody a day off once a week. I'm not talking about a huge role, but there was enough ability there that Michael Jordan could be a legitimate major league player. Now, Francona thought it would take three years, give him 1,500 at bats. He had 15, he had 500 the first year or so. Another two years, he was on his way. And I have to believe that Jerry Reinsdorf, if he's got Michael Jordan under contract, and he's doing okay with enough ability, when the rosters expanded in September back in those years, I got to believe that Jordan at least would have been there in 95 if there wasn't a strike or 96 the next year if he stuck around. Tom, I, I'm convinced of this. And, you know, I get into a lot of people who uh, sort of push back at me like, what are you talking about? Look at his stats. Like, I am convinced what Michael Jordan did that year, having not played uh, baseball since whenever, high school or something like that, was incredible. He hit double I mean I know I get double A is not then is not double A now and you're not having like the Nate Pearson type of prospect but the guy basically walked off the street and hit 202 in double A it's that isn't and it's and put up like decent RBI numbers and stolen base numbers and didn't embarrass himself in the field it's a, that I, I think he doesn't come close to getting the amount of credit he should for that accomplishment personally I could not agree more. And you asked me what I learned or what surprised me. You mentioned some of those numbers, all right? He had 51 RBIs. That's a guy who, let's face it, he had very little power. He was basically a singles hitter, right? To drive in 51 runs in double A without power, what does that tell you? That means in the crunch time, he found a way to get people home. You know, we certainly saw that on the basketball court when the chips were down that he came through. 51 walks. And 30 stolen bases. So I actually went back and I looked at the Chicago White Sox minor league system and the major leagues in the last four years. Every player in the White Sox system and the majors, how many of those players had 51 RBIs, 51 walks, and 30 steals? And the answer is zero. Nobody did it. (laughs) You're talking about more than 1,200 player seasons over those four years. And nobody had 51 RBIs, 51 walks, and 30 steals. And Michael did that in double A. I mean, listen, if you draft a guy in the first round, pretty much he's not starting in double A, right? He's going to rookie ball. He's going to A ball. This guy hasn't played in 14 years, and he's going to A ball. Uh, it is amazing when you look at Michael's numbers. The other thing I noticed, and I hadn't noticed this until I saw the last dance those nights, when he was in spring training, you can see he's got a very different swing than what he had in the regular season. In spring training, and actually over that winter, he was working with Walt Riniak, the White Sox hitting coach. And if you knew Walt Riniak, brilliant hitting coach, right? But he was 
very technical. He had a very idiosyncratic way of teaching hitting. I mean, it's a very advanced way of hitting. And Michael had that Riniac swing in spring training. But to me, that was like taking a kid in grammar school and teaching them calculus. It's too hard for someone who's as raw as Michael Jordan. When he goes to Birmingham, uh, Michael Barnett is the hitting coach there. And he simplified his approach a lot. And if you watch that again, you look at his swing with the Barons and look at his swing with Riniac in spring training, it's totally different. And he hit 276 in August. So he was getting better as the year went on. 252 in the Arizona Fall League with a lot of the top prospects. What an aptitude that guy showed for me to, to go through a, basically a swing change, not just coming back and playing, but to change your stroke and have it work. Man, what an athlete. Tom, um, do you have um, do you recall your reaction to the Sports Illustrated cover? I don't think you. I'm, I don't think you were working in SI at the time. If you were, I apologize. But do do you happen to do, do you remember that cover coming out and what your reaction would have been to that cover, the Baggett Michael cover? Yeah, I, I, I wasn't SI because, like I said, I remember writing the story in the Arizona Fall League oh, wow. uh, for SI six months later, whatever it was, seven months later. Um, yeah, I. I didn't like it because, first of all, it was I think it was three weeks in the spring training. I think the last dance sort of misrepresented when that story ran. Uh, it ran in spring training. So it was total first impression for a guy who hadn't played baseball in, in 14 years, right? But what I didn't like was the fact that I thought this was the best advertisement Major League Baseball could possibly have. Here's the guy who's probably the most famous athlete in the world, still on top of his game at basketball. And he wants to play baseball. He chose baseball. Baseball didn't chose him. My goodness, you can't have a better endorsement than having Michael Jordan say, I'm quitting basketball to go play baseball. He should have been welcomed with open arms. And yet baseball establishment, when I talked to Sandy Allison, he said, make sure you put baseball journalists in this category as well. And I do. Is very hidebound traditional, right? And this guy came in, coming in, hadn't, quote, unquote, paid his dues. He was taking a double-A job away from somebody who was trying to fight his way out of A-ball. All those things you heard in resistance to Michael Jordan, instead of embracing Michael Jordan, putting on a baseball uniform. Last one for me, Tom. Uh, you have uh, worked in this business for a long time. I've told the story many times when I was 19. Uh, I wrote two letters to two sports journalists. One was in Buffalo that, who lived like six miles away from where I was. One was Tom Berducci who lived far away and had no business writing me back, but he wrote me a two-page hand-written uh, letter uh, about my stuff, and that's something you, as a young uh, writer, you never forget. And so um, I, I know you care about this business um, greatly, Tom. If, if you were talking to a, um, a 20-year-old or a 19-year-old or a 21-year-old, who wanted to go into sports journalism right now, wanted to specifically be in um, baseball, could could you confidently say that that person could have a lifelong career covering the sport right now? Or are you, given sort of where we are with the crumbling of newspapers and less resources to journalism as a whole, are you concerned that that position I mean, there'll always be somebody writing about baseball, but can one sustain a, uh, a career where one can pay their bills doing this for the next 30, 40 years? Where do you stand on that? I would say yes, and I think you need two things to make that happen uh, at a minimum. You need passion and you need curiosity. 
it's not just enough to say you want to get into baseball journalism. You want to cover a team. You know, you're a fan of the game. The Mets are your favorite team. The Dodgers are your favorite team. That's not nearly enough. It's a very competitive business. As you sort of alluded there, it's it's sort of a, str- a shrinking business when you think about the number of jobs. But it's a very rewarding business if you love it. And I've always told people, if you're doing something that you love, if you find yourself doing some things when you have free time, not reading when a teacher gives you an assignment, um, but whatever you're doing when the time is yours, and if you can make that into a vocation, man, you have won. So in a competitive field especially, you better bring passion. And then the other thing I always say is curiosity. You better continue to challenge yourself to learn To me, Richard, covering baseball is fascinating because I think in the last five years, it's changed more than in my first 34 years covering the game. It's unbelievable how much the game, the way it's played, the strategy of the game, certainly the way it's covered, but uh, the changes have come so fast that the only way you keep up with it is to be curious and to realize that whatever you learned before, maybe it doesn't apply now. And it's probably a good advice in any business, but I think especially in baseball, you better be curious, continue to learn. Um, and, and I use this line all the time, which I, I think is the best advice I could give anybody because I got it from Vince Gully. And like a lot of people, I wondered how can Vince Gully could be so good at such an advanced age doing the same job for so long. And he was still the very best in his last year doing it. I mean, how does that happen? Uh, and he actually quoted a line from Lawrence Olivier, and he said, it's the humility to prepare and the passion and the confidence to pull it off. So the humility to prepare means that Vince in his last year was preparing for a game like it was his first year, right? He wasn't coasting. He wasn't saying, well, I know baseball already. I know my job. I know how to do this. I don't need to prepare. I can just show up and do the game. Well, no, you can do that, but you can't be the best. So humility to prepare is super important. Uh, because, you know, let's face it, you go in to take a test in school. If you're not prepared, you're really nervous and you're not going to do well. You did study and you're prepared, you're full of confidence. And that's the other half of it. As he said, the confidence to pull it off at some point, as many people may believe in you, friends, family, teachers, mentors, whoever, you have to believe in yourself, especially in this business where there are a lot of doors that are going to get closed on you. If you're starting out, a lot of times people say no, Um, But if you have the confidence in yourself to pull it off, that's going to get you through all those times people say no for the one time that somebody says yes. It's always good to end on uh, Vince Scully, Tom. Uh, Can't uh, think of a better person there. (laughs) The best. Absolute best. And and i got to add, Vince Scully is one of those rare people who is actually as good or better than you want him to be as a person, right? You look up to somebody and you met, oh, I hope when I meet him, he's really a nice guy. Yeah, that's great to hear, actually. Um, Tom Verducci is a senior writer and a longtime one at Sports Illustrated, also a broadcaster, uh, both uh, calling games as well as being an analyst for, um, uh, in terms of the studio, for MLB Network and Fox Sports. And hopefully when baseball comes back, You'll hear Tom call games. You can certainly still see him on the MLB Network, which has done a really good job, I think, of covering uh, the issues of the game, uh, despite being a, um, a league-run network. Uh, their independence has always been pretty impressive to me. Tom Verducci, uh, I can't thank you enough. It's great to catch up with you. And uh, stay safe. And hopefully we'll be, uh, we'll be reading you or hearing you 
calling live baseball very soon. Thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Well, let's hope so. And Richard, always a pleasure chatting with you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Back in the studio, my thanks to Tom Berducci for a uh, terrific conversation. Um, the best baseball writer, certainly, of uh, my lifetime and the best baseball writer of his generation, I think, for sure. So I appreciate Tom. He's a great colleague, and I really appreciate him coming on the podcast. Previous episodes include Bob Costas. He was our last sports media podcast guest, and he was really, really great in terms of talking about his work with the Concussion Legacy Foundation, uh, what happened in the latter years for him at NBC Sports, his appearance in The Last Dance. It was He was really good, uh, and I certainly recommend that, uh, that interview. Had a couple of uh, sports media kind of gab sessions with Chad Finn of the Boston Globe and John O'Rand of the Sports Business Daily. So check those out if you want some uh, sort of sports media nerding out. Prior to that, ESPN's Sean McDonough did some stuff on sort of where he uh, thinks broadcasting is and his own um, experience with Monday Night Football. It's pretty relevant, I think, right now. And then just go down the list of... uh, of interview guests. You had uh, Scott Van Pelt on March 23rd, Dr. Sling Gounder and Grant Wall on March 18th, and uh, if you're into NASCAR, Jamie Little and Shannon Spake in uh, mid-February. Also did something in January with uh, Tim Kawakami and Howard Beck on covering Kobe Bryant. So check up all the uh, check out all the uh, episodes in the archives. Uh, please leave us a five-star review. And, uh, um, and uh, that is really basically the way the podcast stays on. So thank you for that. I want to thank uh, Sean Cherry and Patrick Antonetti for all their hard work during COVID-19 putting this podcast together. Thank you for that. Thanks to Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott, and everybody back to Cadence 13. We will see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.